My name is JJ Anselmi, and I'm the author of Heavy, a memoir of Wyoming, BMX Drugs, and Heavy Fucking Music, which was recently released by Rare Bird. Today, I'm honored to be talking with Hugo Award-winning editor and novelist of the awesome Taft 2012 from Quirk Books, uh, Jason Heller. So, Jason hey, has played hey, in a ton of amazing... Hey, Jason, how's it going? Good, man. Um, so yeah, I wanted to give people a little background on kind of how we met. And so Jason has played in a ton of amazing bands. And I first met him when we were both working at a warehouse in Denver. Um, Mike Ricketts of Planes Mistaken for Stars and Luke Fairchild of Get Some and Kingdom of Magic were all these super awesome bands. Um, also worked at the warehouse. So I just felt like kind of a fanboy working with them and Jason. Uh, and I knew Jason as a guitarist for this uh, legendary Denver band, Red Cloud West, um, which is kind of like post-punk filtered through a Western lens. Um, so my first question, um, I've just been wondering about uh, how you first got started playing music. What was your background and some of your first bands? Yeah, um Jesus, man. So, yeah, you just mentioned Red Cloud. So that was when I was working with you at the warehouse, which was like around 2009, I think, right? Like 2010. And Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that had been kind of the latest band, uh, Red Cloud West, the, uh, of a long kind of string of bands I had been in for about 10 years prior. So um, the first real band I was in, I mean, there was a few like false starts here and there, of course, like we all have. But the first real band I was in was this band called Crestfallen uh, in the uh, early to mid-90s in Denver. Uh, and I played bass in that band. I started out playing guitar, but I was just such a shitty guitarist at the time. I, like, didn't know how to make real chords or what the names, like, what the what the strings were, you know what I mean? Like, I did barely yeah. even knew how to, like, change my strings. I just made up weird chords and played stuff. And... Uh, but when it came to playing with other people, you know, bass was a lot easier um, to do. And so I picked up bass and played in that band, Crestfallen, which was kind of like, uh, I mean, we played in the pop punk scene, but we were kind of more, I guess, it, you know, at the time, um, the word emo was just starting to be used. But it, it was kind of more like Jawbreaker and Sam I Am okay. and uh, even... So it had like, I mean, it wasn't like happy poppy. Um, it had a little bit of a post-hardcore feel to it. And um, we listened to tons of Discord bands and stuff like that. So anyway, we did that for a few years. And then we shared a practice space with a band in Denver. Um, it was a warehouse downtown. And I lived there uh, at the warehouse on Arapahoe Street in Denver in the mid-90s. And we shared the practice space with this band, Christy Front Drive who are, of course, now a legendary emo band that t yeah. tons of people all over the country um, have, you know, they've influenced them and they've done big reunion shows and stuff. Um, and uh, the bass player of Christy Front Drive, Carrie McDonald, was my roommate at that warehouse, and then both our bands practiced there, and we put on shows there. Um, Crestfallen and Christy Front Drive broke up about the same time in maybe 96 or 97, so me mm -hmm. and two of the guys from Christy Front Drive started a band called The Blue Ontario, which was around only for about three years. But we did a lot of touring, oh. and we were almost kind of like this, like, space rock, like, shoegazer kind of band with tons of effects and, and, uh, and like that. And that was real fun. And then that band broke up right around 99, and then I... Uh, pretty soon after that, just got sick of having so many effects and so many amps that you, I needed in the Blue Ontario. So I pared it all back down and started this band uh, called Red Cloud West, which, as you mentioned, had kind of like, like almost like a country rock feel to it um, in a yeah. weird sort of way. And then I've since gone on to do some other stuff. But, yeah. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that's pretty serious resume. I had no idea um, that you <clears throat> shared the space with Chrissy Front Drive and were uh, roommates with one of the members. That's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was great. And then playing in the Blue Ontario with two of those guys from Christie Front Drive. It was the drummer Ron Marshall and the guitarist Jason Began. Um, that was real fun. Oh, okay. And here's a fun little bit of trivia too. Um, so the very first tour, or the very first national tour that Planes Mistaken mm-hmm. for Stars did back when they just started out was opening for the Blue Ontario. I had gotten to know Garrett from Planes Mistaken for Stars because he would come out here to see his mom. He still lived in Peoria, and he was just a teenager. Okay. And I worked at Wax Tracks Records, and he would come in, and we would talk and hit it off, you know. And uh, so he would keep in touch with me, and he was like, I had this new band, Planes Mistaken for Stars. We want to tour with the Blue Ontario. And so we took them on tour with us, and it wasn't long after that that Planes Mistaken for Stars the whole band moved to Denver from Peoria and of course the rest of that is history. But what is um, kind of funny is one of the people from Peoria they brought with them was this guy, Anthony Curry. And right at the end of the blue Ontario, um, our drummer, Ron, who was in Christie front drive, he quit the band and we needed another drummer. So this guy, Anthony, that came with the blue on that came with planes mistaken for stars he he had just mm-hmm. moved here and he became our drummer in the blue ontario which was only for like like a few months and then the whole band broke up um what's funny is anthony went on to be in minsk um the metal oh, band geez. in chicago uh years later um he's no longer in minsk but he's been doing lots of stuff lately i think he just did a bunch of recordings with one of the guys um from uh Oh, which band is it? Um, uh, no, I can't remember. But he's been doing a bunch of stuff with different people from relapse bands, which Minsk was originally. Oh, cool. I don't think they are anymore. But um, but yeah, so it's kind of cool. Like he's been, um, you know, there's like all these kind of weird connections and stuff uh, with a, with a lot of bands that have, that have been around, and that that actually pertain to to you know the, the music you talk about in heavy, you know. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's super interesting. Um, just thinking about all the different kind of branches um, of I don't know bands and music that connect to Denver in some way. To me, it's just kind of a testament of you know how rad the Denver music scene has been forever. Basically, it's like this secret. Yeah, I don't know how secret it is anymore. I guess it's been getting more and more popular. Especially with like uh, primitive man, I feel like is putting you know Denver heavy scene on the map. But yeah, I mean it's been this kind of secret gem of you know music, every type of music basically for a super long time. Yeah, the difference was you know back in the day, like in the '90s, like no, there was all different types of music in the scene, but no mm-hmm. two bands sounded alike. It was like it was just re- it was almost seemed like the lamest thing in the world you could do is sound like your friend's band that that didn't last forever of course but for a while it was like almost every big band like there was no band that sounded remotely like crestfallen you know we had painstake which was yeah. our like kind of like token straight edge hardcore band and you know cuz you mm-hmm. you played with uh um with Jay Andrade who was in painstake and yeah. so and so they were kind of like the bi- the the token like straight edge metalcore band in you know in Denver, um, and so it was, you know, there, there was, and then Christy Front Drive was kind of the token like emo band, and I don't say token in a bad way, but it, in a way it almost felt like it at the time. And we would all play shows with each other, um, and pretty soon bands did start to kind of sound a little more similar to each other. But but I I, I miss that you know how different everyone sounded and how proud everyone was to sound different than than everyone else. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Straight Edge because that, yeah, definitely leads into the next question. Um, and so we've kind of, I remember hearing you mention it um, a few times before about uh, you talking about identifying as Straight Edge at, as Straight Edge at different points in your life. And so I was just wondering, um, you know, when you kind of first adopted that as an identity and, you know, what what was it a reaction to or anything like that? Yeah. You know, this is where I related so much to a lot of the stuff that you wrote about, uh, in heavy, you know, even though like we're a few years apart and geographically grew up in different places, I grew up mostly in Florida before I moved to Colorado when I was like 13. 
And, oh. you know, my family is just straight oh. up like, just, there's just no other word for it. And, you know, because you use it too, white trash. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're just straight up, straight up white <laughs> trash. We were poor, uh, ignorant, <laughs> and fucking rebellious. <laughs> my mom was just a hellraiser. You know, she hung out with Hell's Angels and dealt drugs and was just a fucking total hellion, you know what I mean? Bless her heart, she's a great lady, I love her. But, um, you know, I grew up with drugs and alcohol around me all the time. I was encouraged to drink beer, you know, when I was like five years old, you know, like five in my house. I I was allowed to walk around, because there was always multiple open beers in the house at all times. And so I was always yeah. like welcome to just pick one up and drink it. Uh, and so um, I think it was about when I was about 15 or 16, um, my friend James was staying over at my house and my mom actually bought us a 12 pack. <laughs> we were like 15 <laughs> yeah. or 16. It, you know, my mom at that stage, and I don't know if you ever got this, but it was like, my mom was like, well, if you're going to get drunk or try drugs, I'd rather you did it at home where yeah. I know you're safe. And <laughs> if you ever want to try anything, just come to me. And it, like, yeah. that was that was the bizarre attitude. Um, and, of course, I got drunk. We both got drunk off of six beers each, right? We're like 15. So mm-hmm. six beers apiece completely fucking, like, blacked us out practically, you know, because we're just kids. Yeah. Um, so some 15-year-olds are pretty heavy drinkers by that point in their lives, <laughs> I guess. But, uh but um, I woke up the next day and obviously had a hangover, and that wasn't really the main thing that did it, though, the actual hangover. It was like all of a sudden I felt like my mom. My mom was always hungover, with all, and all yeah. that comes with having a hungover mom at all times. And I think at that point I was just getting into punk and stuff like that, and I found out about Straight Edge. And, uh, you know, the first band, I just went down to Wax Tracks, you know, records and flipped through and they have little descriptions written on the cards. And I just did that until I found a couple straight edge records, which were Youth of Today and No for an Answer. Um, So, two, (laughs) you know, it wasn't called metalcore back then, but metallic, you know, straight edge hardcore bands. Um, And that was like in the late 80s. And, uh, and yeah, I think I, I, I found those bands and listened to the lyrics and it just all clicked with me. And at that point, um, yeah, I started calling myself straight edge. I probably would have been around 16 or 17. That's uh yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and yeah, it does sound super similar to kind of my experience because it sounds like, um, I don't know. I feel like so straight edge can, I mean, it, you know, obviously has <laughs> horrible branches and can be stupid and a lot of people grow out of it, grow out of it and stuff like that. But, um, it seems like oftentimes the kind of narrative is that people get involved with it by just like, you know, kind of being part of a group. So you, that's interesting to me that you found it kind of just on your own, just of your own volition, basically. <clears throat> It was. I didn't know anyone else who was straight edge, and I didn't for quite a while. I was always kind of a loner as a kid anyway. I got into punk almost entirely on my own, Um, and it wasn't going to shows. For the first few years, it was just buying records and reading about music. Um, Some just really have lots of social anxiety and social awkwardness and being at shows. And I was a poor kid, too. I couldn't even afford it. I mean, when I say poor, I mean poor, poor, (laughs) like continually evicted homeless at times are my entire family like not just like oh we don't have a lot of money like we barely survived at certain points so me there was no group aspect of straight edge it was just something that i took kind of personally you know what i mean to me i look Mm -hmm. at it for better or for worse almost and i'm not a religious person and i know you get into this too in the book but you know i but I almost view it as a difference between organized religion and having your own personal spirituality. Like to me, that's what straight edge was, was a personal thing. Um, and then, you know, when I first encountered the church of straight edge, as it were, the group, you know, almost like the, that great scene in heavy, when you go to Salt Lake, you know what I mean? And you're, you know, yeah. at, what, what, is it like, it's bleeding through, isn't it? That's who that's who you're <laughs> yeah, you going through, to see. Yeah. And you're just like, this is straight edge, like belligerent assholes, misogynists, 
people violent against women, which happened here in Denver too. Straight edge dudes. Yeah. If like they were, it, there was a friend of mine. I won't, I won't mention her name, but she was straight edge in Denver in the '90s and played in bands. And she lost her edge, and she got her ass kicked for it by huh. just idiotic straight edge dudes. Like like two or three mm-hmm. dudes kicked the shit out of her. For Jesus. It, you know? So <clears throat> when I first encountered the group, the herd mentality of it, I was like, I was not into it. Um, I, at that point, I pretty much stopped calling myself straight edge and just said, I don't drink or do drugs um, oh, okay. rather, than, rather than be associated with it. Um, and, that, and I kind of just let it go at that for, for quite a few years. I see. Um, yeah, and I mean, you, I mean, really brought up what I wanted to talk about anyway, which is that kind of, yeah, you say herd mentality, and it just takes on that really, you know, meathead kind of militaristic vibe that's horrible, and I think, yeah, it does end up turning a lot of people off, and so, I mean, Salt Lake is just, you know, infamous for it, and I think um, it seems like it, it sounds like it carried over a lot to Denver as well. And so I was just wondering, you know, if you could kind of, if you've ever had any like particularly gnarly experiences with Salt Lake straight edge when you're touring or anything like that. Right. And yeah, even back then, of course, we heard about Salt Lake's straight edge scene, right. And how violent and mm-hmm. militant was and uh, you know, and th- what was, there's like the, the, vandalism or bombing or something of like a fur store like is that maybe that's totally apocryphal i don't i don't remember but i remember that being a a straight edge urban legend that circulated around this is before the internet so you could readily get online and like check these things you know but um the straight edge scene was never that bad even though i related a particularly negative anecdote about my friend getting beat up um Mm -hmm. I didn't. I wasn't as involved in the scene itself, though. Um, so there's probably a lot of really horrible stuff that went on. Um, the band that I played in, I was in Crestfallen at the time, and I was the only straight edge guy in that band. Um, mm-hmm. And we played mostly with pop punk bands, and they were not straight edge by any stretch of the imagination, of course. Um, hard drinking bands for the most part. We're talking Pinhead Circus, the Nobodies, like you know bands that you mm-hmm. know, partied um but the straight edge you know i think that you know the, you know that i i didn't see as much of that that like kind of negative stuff going on in denver although i'm sure it happened and you know the one band that played with all the other bands a lot was painstake so the straight edge band yeah. that was almost always playing with non-straight-edge local bands. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were awesome. To me, the thing about Painstake was they were openly straight-edge. They were signed to one of the most militant straight-edge labels in the country. Um, But the thing is, they... To them, I always got the impression it was this this personal thing with them. You know, it was... It wasn't, they were part of the scene and all that, but I always get, at least maybe it was me just projecting what I wanted to see into this band I liked, you know, but they just didn't mm-hmm. seem so meatheaded. Um, you know, they had an African-American guy, Sam, in the band, which right off the bat, you didn't see often in the punk scene, let alone the straight edge scene, which was just so re- yeah. predominantly white, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then you had dudes in the band, you know, that I knew personally that, had struggles it wasn't a militant thing they had their struggles with with trying to remain straight edge um yeah and then as i got to know you know more of the dudes personally in that band you know um you know thomas and you know they're they're just really they were just really great dudes and that kind of helped me break down my monolithic view of organized straight edge or the straight edge scene as this overwhelmingly Mm -hmm negative off-putting thing i started to see okay well there's assholes in the scene and then there's really cool thoughtful people uh in the scene as well and you know that kind of that was that was a good point to get to it to to realize that obviously that's a good lesson to take to any area of your life right yeah yeah for sure and 
I mean, it seems like, you know, Ian McKay, now, I, I don't know, I guess in interviews, he seems mostly irritated when people ask him about straight edge, but when he does talk about it, it seems like, you know, he, he's, he emphasizes the kind of personal choice aspect and says, you know, it was never intended to really become this, you know, super organized, rigid thing. It was always this kind of personal choice that felt right for him, basically. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, when the the new documentary about Discord Records and the DC hardcore scene, uh, Salad Days, when that came out last year, I hosted a screening of it here in Denver and did an interview with Scott Crawford, the director of the documentary. Um, And, of course, that came up, you know, like talking about, you know, what straight edge, what it, what the original intention of, you know, Minor Threat was, and Ian McKay with writing, you know, those songs. Um, and, and, and yeah, you know, it, it definitely wasn't meant to be a movement. At the same time, I always feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out when Ian continuously says in interviews that, like, it was never meant to be that, and he just kind of washes his hands of it, and, and you yeah. can't. You can't do that. I mean, you actually do have to kind of take a little bit of ownership and responsibility. Not responsibility, I guess, but you've got to engage the issue. And to me, it's always a little disappointing that he just wants to write it off, you know. And I suspect it's because either him and or other members, you know, other prominent straight-edge people just aren't straight-edge anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Fugazi, like... there's no way on earth the dudes in Fugazi don't smoke weed, at least some of them. I mean, by <laughs> the sure. end, it's, especially if you've ever seen them live, they fucking jam. I mean, they're a jam yeah. band. They would jam for like fucking 20 minutes, you know, in yeah. an awesome way, not in a way that, you know, like fucking fish or something. But, but you know, and, and there was, and just, you know, the groove of those bass lines and stuff. Not that you have to be a yeah. stoner to do stuff like that. But, um, you know, Joe Lally started his own record label and started putting out stoner rock bands. So maybe that kind of speaks for itself right there. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I was also uh, curious about, um, so I know I've also heard you, I remember you saying on uh, one of those bus rides home and kind of a little caveat for any listeners, Jason and I used to ride uh, the 44 bus uh, from downtown Denver, um, out to this warehouse. And so I remember, you know, just like additional opportunities to talk. It was a beautiful Uh, route. Do you remember it it stopped at the County jail? (laughs) Like the bus. (laughs) Oh shit. I forgot about that. It fucking stopped at the the County county jail. jail, Like there's nothing (laughs) to make you feel like, man, maybe I'm doing something wrong with my life. When like that, your bus ride to work has a stop at the County jail on your way to work. It's like, (laughs) Maybe there's something symbolic here. <laughs> Maybe I'm in the wrong <laughs> line of work. But yeah, we yeah, used to we I used completely to talk forgot about, about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember you uh, saying, so you you briefly mentioning, uh, you know, breaking edge or, you know, trying uh, booze and drugs after identifying as straight edge. And so, um, yeah, I was just wondering if you'd want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was straight edge until I was 27. Uh, that would have been in 1999 and then, um, maybe a pretty typical thing, but I was in a relationship like uh, a long-term relationship. I think I'd been with this woman for three years and we lived together Mm -hmm. for a couple of years and we broke up and it was just this huge, um, it was just this huge thing. And at that point, I had just felt, uh, I think my social anxiety had been worsening, um, mm-hmm. and it had started to really get to the point where I really mm-hmm. felt excluded um, from most of my friends because of the fact that I didn't drink. Um, yeah. And at 27, you're still at that age where it's just still super important in your life to be social uh, and, mm-hmm. you know even if you do have a lot of anxiety and, and are introverted, um, it, it's that, that kind of tug, you know? And so, um, I want, I just was like, fuck it. You know, um, I grabbed a couple friends of mine and said, I want to go drink. And, 
it's it's funny because it totally mirrors some of the you know some of the scenes too in, in heavy you know where you kind of do the same thing it's just this breaking point where you're like fuck it let's just go get wasted you know even yeah. if you've been like not doing anything for a while so um i never did drugs um one time red cloud west was on tour with planes mistaken for stars i think we were in omaha after the show and they busted out some chocolate-covered mushrooms, and I was already drunk as shit at the time. And the only time I ever tried drugs was I ate some of those mushrooms, and nothing happened. Like, absolutely nothing happened. I stayed up all night <laughs> waiting for something to happen, and nothing happened. I just sobered up because I didn't want to chase it with more booze. And so yeah. that was my one. Um, besides the fact that I practically grew up with a contact high my entire childhood, but but that's something else entirely. <laughs> But, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I just drank, um, I drank, it started out just a bit and then it got to be quite a lot, uh, to the point where Mm -hmm. Red Cloud was really like kind of a drunk band. I mean, it was this hard drinking band and it, part of it didn't register with me till later, but you know, like I said, I grew up in Florida white trash like in the 70s and early 80s and like of course my mom listened to southern rock and in a way red cloud a lot of the stuff i wrote and played in that was really southern rock so here i am kind of turning into like my mom i'm playing like southern rock and pounding fucking shots of whiskey and like swilling tons of beer and just being completely belligerent and doing a lot of dumb hurtful just just destructive bullshit. You know, one time Red Cloud was on tour and we were playing, I think, in Tempe, Arizona, and our singer Ross, who's just one of my dearest friends in the world, um, I was so wasted, I fucking was just flailing around like a crazy person on stage, and I fucking crammed my the headstock of my guitar into his face and busted yeah. out one of his front teeth. <laughs> And we just kept playing. We were all drunk, and he's just got blood pouring down his face. And we just keep playing. I was so wasted. As soon as our set was done, I put down my, I threw down my guitar on stage and just was like, fuck yeah. And then just walked right out the door of the venue, went right into our van, and passed out. (laughs) And didn't even take my equipment off the stage. I mean, (laughs) it's just story after story of shit like that. Um, and so actually right before I started working with you at the book warehouse around 2009, um, 2008, Mm -hmm. 2009 is when I decided to get sober again. Mm -hmm. And that lasted, I was still sober when I was working at the warehouse, but I had just started to sneak a beer here and there. Um, and that eventually for the next few years became drinking a little bit more, drinking a little bit more to the point where a couple years ago I was like doing, I was like, I'm a freelance writer. So I would grab my laptop and I would go right in the morning. And as soon as the bar opened up at 11, I would sit at the bar with my laptop. And I'm not one of those people who like idolizes Charles Bukowski or anything like that. I don't see anything yeah. glamorous about the drunk writer stereotype. Um, It was just me trying to be a functioning alcoholic. And things just kind of got to a point where uh, health-wise and mental health-wise, I was like, I just got to stop this. Um, So it's been about uh, almost two years now that I've been been sober again. So it's my, my, you know, my second time of quitting drinking since I started when I was 27. And, you know, part of me likes to beat myself up about it that I even Mm -hmm. went back there in the first place after quitting the first time. But I kind of look at it this way, like you can't just quit once and be done. Like you have to quit and then relapse because you need to know what it, you need to know like the shame of relapsing because you know how bad it is to be drunk all the time, but you don't know how bad it is to have gotten sober and then thrown it away. Like once you've yeah. gotten sober and thrown it away and you know how shitty that feels, which is a way worse feeling, 
you know, you can go one way or the other. You can say fuck it and never return to getting your shit together, or you can mm-hmm. use that as fuel, you know, to to get yourself yeah. better. Um, and that all sounds terribly judgmental, and I de- and I don't mean it really to be because I'm speaking strictly for what works for me. And I know yeah. tons of people. My wife still drinks. You know what I mean? She's mm-hmm. a light creational drinker. Anyone who can drink and do it socially and casually, more power to them. But I'm, I'm just yeah. not one of those people. So. Yeah, I definitely had the <clears throat> same realization. And I mean, I guess my closest experience to getting sober it was only like a month, but it was, you know, the kind of mental energy in getting sober. Um, I, I started thinking about that as you were talking it's like this you know huge like okay i'm gonna change my life like fuck this and um you know if you have kind of an intense personality you just really start to invest everything in it and then when you fuck it up it's just like man you know i'm just like this weak piece of shit etc and yeah i totally know what you mean it's horrible feeling for sure yeah um and so yeah that kind of leads me into my next question. I mean, you were straight edge. So from like, so you, you were saying 15 years old until 27. Yep. Yep. Uh, um, so, I mean, that's 12 straight years. And so I just been just really curious about kind of the like identity gymnastics involved in something like that. And so was it when you're drinking in red cloud and later, was it ever like, I don't know, confusing for you on kind of an identity level? Or are we able to, like, brush it under the rug? Yeah, I think I, I think it was. Um, it, it especially was after I got sober the first time, um, mm-hmm. after having, you know, been drinking for a few years. Because it became, to me, in my mind, and to a lot of people I knew, you know, I was like, hey, I'm proudly sober again. Like, look what I did. Like, you know, like, this is great. And then it was super shameful. And I hid when I started drinking again, I completely hid it. Um, and then I would still run into people and they would be like, Oh, but Jason over here is straight edge. And at the time I might've just been drinking like an hour before, you know what I mean? And it was just kind of like, you know, I'm just like grinning and like, okay. Um, and it became really weird. And then I did have to do gymnastics. And I think anyone who's been an alcoholic, who is an alcoholic, knows the gymnastics. Because even if straight yeah. edge was never part of your life, you're always trying to downplay how much you drink. Um, and mm-hmm. if not how much, you're trying to downplay the negative effect that it has on your life. And you're trying to do that to yourself <laughs> and to other people. Um, yeah. Uh, other people around you. So... Uh, you know, the big thing to me was, and again, this is so cliched, it's almost embarrassing, you know, is, you know, you justify it by saying, um, you know, I need it. I need it for like medication. And it completely was uh-huh. medication for anxiety. You know, it was like, this is what I need. This is my reward for having gotten something done today. Um, something stressed me out today. So I deserve to to take the edge off with a few mm-hmm. shots of whiskey. Um, and part of it, you know, it goes back to how you you grow up. You know, my mom was a waitress growing up, and at times she was a cocktail waitress. You know, I remember we lived in this sh- fucking shitty place in Venice, Florida as a kid, which is just a shitty little fucking town by Sarasota. And she was a cocktail waitress at the bar in a bowling alley. I mean, it just doesn't get more white trash than that. Um, if it's in Florida, especially. And my mom, and this was in the seventies, early eighties, it was in the early eighties. And at that time you could bring your kids into a bar, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and she would just take us in while she was working and she would just sit us at the bar and give us cherry Cokes. She would, we could take, take sips off her beer at home, but she wouldn't let us do it in public, obviously, because that's when fucking the state takes your kids away from you, right? So it was one of those things where we'd be sitting up there drinking, you know, she would pour us, she would take a glass, pour it full of Coke, put the shot of grenadine in it, you know, and we would sit up at the bar drinking what looked like actual alcoholic drinks, you know? And when I was drinking again as an adult, it really, it, it felt like home, sitting at a bar, felt like home. It felt like 
being a kid again. And it's so warped and so messed up that a lot of people are like, oh, what makes you feel like a kid again? You know, you're like, oh, playing baseball or playing video games or reading comic books. To me, feeling like a kid again was sitting at a freaking bar. Like, that's what made yes. me feel like a kid again. And that is just horrible. But that was part of the stuff, you know, you kind of have to got to work through. Um, yeah. And everyone's got their own stories, you know, when, they're, when they drink too much. And, you know, I didn't go through AA or do anything like that. You know, I'm just a stubborn loner dude, so I am just a cold turkey for a fucking rash, you know, like fucking decision type of person. And so I don't know any of the stuff that, that goes along with the 12-step program or any of those those types of things that you're supposed to go through. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I just know my own way of like having groped my way through it a couple of times and... You know, it is just kind of crazy. Some of the weird, like you say, identity gymnastics, some of the the different ways your mind plays tricks on itself, on who you think you are um, totally. when it comes to, to why you do certain things to yourself. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's, I'm really glad you brought it up a few times, this kind of, you know, past factor when you, you know, have that past with it. And for me, with, uh, my dad and, you know, other family members just knowing, like, this is fucking horrible, uh, watching people kind of destroy themselves from, like, an adolescent perspective that definitely gets more, you know, developed throughout the years, but then still I can never really <clears throat> escape that kind of, you know, just destructive picture. Um, and to me, it just seems like it was always connected, like, one drink, it was just like that flood of kind of, again, gymnastics of, like, trying to identify as something that's not your past, you know, not your kind of familial background and stuff like that, and then trying to talk yourself into, you know, well, me drinking isn't the same thing. It's different in these ways and stuff like that. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it just seems, I don't know, super confusing, I guess, at times. Uh, yeah, yeah, it really is, and it's unnecessary mental energy, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, tying yourself into knots and then untying them constantly. You're not accomplishing anything, you know? And yeah. it's fine not to accomplish stuff, but some of us, you know, are creative people. And, you know, um, I, uh, you know, I really, you know, maybe other substances that I haven't tried, I would be more willing to accept the idea that they might aid in creativity um, LSD, mm -hmm. you know, marijuana, who knows, you know, but alcohol, absolutely not. Like it does <laughs> anything you think alcohol helps you do, you would do it a hundred times better without booze, unless it was like <laughs> being an idiotic asshole, then alcohol absolutely helps you. If that's your creative outlet, then alcohol is, is definitely your drug for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it doesn't help you do anything, man. It doesn't bring out anything or break down any barriers. It, it, it just is a complete, you know, for me, is a complete waste. And I want to do stuff. I want to make stuff. And, you know, you know, be, boozing is, was just, you know, just a huge roadblock I kept putting in front of myself. Right. Um, and so I'm always curious when people from like, you know, coming from backgrounds of different styles of art, um, you know, how to make transitions into other styles. And so at what point did you start uh, writing in addition to playing music and what led you there? Yeah, well, I got into playing music. So that was the early 90s, um, the same time that there was a huge zine explosion. Um so I, at the same time I was starting to play in Crestfallen in the early 90s, I subscribed to Fact Sheet 5, which was the big zine magazine. It was basically like what would now just be a website forum. It, but back then it was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reviews of zines that people did. And, um, and I know I'm probably saying all oh, this is obvious. Fact Sheet 5 is very famous and everything. But... But in case anyone's listened to this and, and isn't aware, you know, Fact Sheet 5 was the way for people who made zines to connect with each other. You would 
subscribe to it, read reviews of zines that seem similar to yours, and then you would trade. It would have their addresses, and you would trade zines, and you would make friends with people. Um, and I made some great friends, and I started actually contributing to some zines from around the country, like Rocktober, which is this great zine from Chicago that's still around. That's just amazing. Um, I started yeah. doing stuff with them. But what was funny is at the time, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Um, and I had, I drew comics. My zines were all comics. They weren't, uh, they weren't prose. And so I started out doing tons of comics for, uh, for other zines and for my own zine. Um, and I followed that really like passionately for quite a few years. And then it just got to the point where like, I realized I, I would also do a few reviews here and there for zines. Uh, there's a local yeah. zine called The Hooligan, and I would write like record reviews for them. And there's another one called Creative Insanity, which was a punk zine. Um, and I would do like record reviews and stuff, but I never took it very seriously. But it got to the point by the end of the 90s where it was so much work to convey information and tell a story in comics compared to writing what would take me yeah. 40 hours worth of drawing comics to say I could say in four hours of writing and mm -hmm. I'm an impatient person uh anyone who knows me will tell you I'm super impatient which is not a yeah. trade at all but <laughs> I was like I'm just going to write because it's more expedient and efficient um and so I started writing and uh and I was still playing tons of music at the time but there was a zine um, that was really professionally done called Skyscraper, which was around like in the late 90s up through the mid-2000s. Um, and it was a big print magazine, um, and it covered lots of hardcore and post-hardcore and emo, um, but lots of other styles of music too. Um, and, and it was very seriously, it was very serious about its music writing and music journalism. And I wrote yeah. for them for a while, and it didn't pay anything, but it really helped kind of build up my chops a bit and made me think. And I'm being in, I was in this nationally distributed magazine, and, you know, I would go on tour to some other city, and I would go to the record store, and a copy of it would be sitting for sale there with, like, my review in it. And that was just, like, to me, that was more awesome than being in the band that was playing a show that night, was having my name. In. Because you're the band, you're just another anonymous dude and another band up there, at least the level of mm -hmm. band I was at. So it, it, part of it was uh, I liked the recognition of it. You know, it was maybe an ego thing even. It was like, wow, it's great to be recognized with my name on there. It's not like I went up on stage, you know, and was like, I'm Jason Heller. I'm going to play a song for you. <laughs> you know, I'm just another dude in the band, you know. Yeah. Um, and that <laughs> drove me. Um, you know, I, I think it did. Uh, and, you know, the more I, I've always done music and writing side by side. There was a time when I was in the Blue Ontario where I thought we might actually make something of this band, um, where we might actually get somewhere. Um, because this was at a time when emo was starting to get big uh, in the late 90s. It was before the big explosion of it in the early 2000s but you know the dudes in jimmy eat world were friends of ours um you know we played with lots of bands that wound up getting big um yeah and we thought you know this could happen to us um and when that band fell apart i think I, it pretty much at that point in my life which was also the point where i started drinking i was like i'm never going to be in a band that makes it um, I'm almost 30, which is funny now. I'm turning 44 next week. And I, I, at the time, I'm thinking, you know, at the time, I was, like, still in my 20s, and I felt, like, old, you know? And I was, like, you yeah. know, it, trying to make it in a band is something for, like, you know, it, it's not for me. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's something I'm just going to do as a hobby, and I'm going to love doing it, and I'll always do it. But I can't do this for for real, you know? And I started right. going back to school, um, and I started studying journalism, um, but what happened was I started getting a regular writing job at Westward, 
the local alt-weekly paper here in Denver, for those of you not from Denver. Um, and uh, which is funny because the music editor at Westward read something I wrote in a local zine. I had written something about like Jonathan Richmond. I reviewed his new album in a local zine. And the music editor had picked that zine up, read it, and then tracked me down and sent me an email, um, which this would have been around 2001 or two, 2002. Um, and so I started writing professionally um, getting professional paying music journalism assignments, and I dropped out of college because, A, I was almost 30 years old, just barely getting going in college, which at the time felt yeah. humiliating to me for some weird reason. Again, it's in hindsight, it seems crazy that I would feel out of place. But, uh, but as a 30-year-old in freshman classes with 18-year-olds, I did feel super out of place. And I was right. getting paid to do the thing I was studying. I was studying journalism and I was getting paid to do it. And I would get home every day and I'd be like, do I do my homework or do I do this paid journalism assignment? And right. so I just dropped out of school, out of college, and just started pursuing writing hardcore, um, even though I was still uh, still playing music at the time. And even in, I was even in a touring band at the time with Red Cloud, but... Um, but you know, the main focus really became writing at that point. And I was still involved in music because at that point I hadn't started reviewing books. I hadn't started writing fiction. All I was doing was reviewing music. So I was still, yeah. it was, that was kind of like the, the, the gateway. That was, that was the stepping stone between music <laughs> and writing was doing music journalism, which I still do tons of. Yeah, um, and so I guess I, you know, as kind of a fellow um, musician and writer, I feel like, and, you know, part of it's definitely imagined uh, on my part, but I still feel like there's this kind of stereotype for a lot of music writers of like, oh, well, you can't, you know, you can't play, and there's yeah. almost a sort of resentment from other musicians, and so I was just wondering, um, you know, did writing, do you think it made you a better musician in any way? Um, probably not. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> it, I think that that being, I don't know if either of them helped the other at, at all. Oh, okay. I totally see what you're saying, that musicians generally, and a lot of times, resent music journalists um, it's almost like a teacher yeah. is someone who can't do is the joke, right? You teach, you can't do. Of course, yeah. that's not true. Um, and that, mu you know, that music journalists are frustrated musicians. And, you know, at the time, yeah. my band was doing okay. We were touring, you know. I had already decided I didn't want to take it to any other level. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think, if anything, um, the big difference it, it, that I've always, the big tension, the big conflict that I've always had, like in my soul, to be quite honest, really kind of came out when I was pursuing both music and writing kind of at the same time. Um, rather than them helping each other or giving me perspective on the other, um, it really made me see the distinction. When I play music, I have to be social. You have to interact with people. You have to be diplomatic right. with the people in your band. Then you go play a show, uh, and then you are in front of a bunch of people. You have to interact with the other bands that you're on the bill with. Um, you, uh, for, your friends come and see you. You've got to be social. Um, writing yeah. is completely solitary. And it was at that point in my life, you know, it's like a hermetic thing, and it was at that point that I started to realize you know what, maybe the problem I've been having, and it even ties into alcohol, is I'm trying to make myself be a social person, and I'm just not. Mm. Um, and half the problems I get into is when I try to make myself become a social person. Drinking in a large, part, in a large way was me trying to make myself become a social person, which I, which I just am not. Um, and then writing, I realized how much more at peace, as difficult as it was, you know, I never got lonely. Like, 
you know, I, and when I at that, when I reached that point in my life where I stopped being lonely, I stopped feeling lonely when I was alone, and I started feeling happy and fulfilled when I was alone, and at peace with myself, and accepting of the fact that I was just kind of a loner type of person. That's when my yeah. writing really took off, and I stopped trying to force myself into this social musician like, hey everybody, what's up? Let's drink and fucking rock, and you know, and it was all false. <laughs> I'm like just not that person, you know, that's just, it's just so not me. It was me trying to be like my mom. That's the type of person yeah. my mom is and all of her friends. And I'm just not that outgoing dude. You know what I mean? Uh, and I was completely just pretending and drinking myself to that point. So it was a great, it just felt completely liberating getting to the point where I could just focus on my writing and, there's still a lot of stuff to overcome learning how to write and it has its own social obligations uh, in yeah. its own way as well. Of course you interact with editors <laughs> sometimes in person, sometimes online, sometimes you have to do live readings. So there's a performance aspect of it, you know, kind of like there's mm -hmm. with music. There's definitely parallels, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's when the, it was like a switch going off. You know, it was finally the right time in my life and the right um, creative outlet. Uh, it, that was, it was just the right time for me to do it, you know. Yeah, that's a super interesting way to put the kind of, um, you know, social social identity and kind of just embracing your solitariness. I've never really heard anybody, um, you know, talk about playing music or writing in that way. That's pretty cool. Um, and another thing I really just admire about, um, you know, just you as a writer, is it seems like you just have this super concrete stance to it. I mean, which is cool because you write like this, is, you know, you can write some of the weirdest, awesome, like speculative fiction that just seems like, you know, a product of somebody who's been tripping on LSD in the desert for 40 years or some shit. But you have this very, like, you know, when I talk to you and um, just kind of, like, think about you as a writer, I always think blue collar, you know, just, like, just very concrete. And so I was wondering if you could talk about, yeah, your approach to writing in that way. Do you see it as a form of labor? I do, absolutely. Probably I see it as a form of labor. Um, I do this to survive. I do it to live. Um, yeah. I have no fallback, no plan B no fucking golden parachute, no silver spoon. There is, I'm not going to inherit a penny in my entire fucking life. Like there is, mm -hmm. everyone in my family is drank themselves to death or are dirt poor. There's, there's nothing I have to fall back on. Um, uh, you know, I've worked outside of writing. The only real jobs I've had are working in warehouses and working retail. So to me, writing is, getting shit done, get the job done. Yeah. Um, I understand uh, the whole academic writing approach. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't mean to say that everyone who approaches writing from an academic background means they're not blue collar or doesn't come from, from maybe a background that's closer to mine. I don't automatically equate uh, academia with affluence. Um, of course, yeah. there is a huge overlap, um, and uh, totally. you know you're involved in academia. You know exactly how it goes, but it's one yeah. of those things where I do know a, lo the, a lot of people who are writers who have very steady, stable day jobs, and they write on the side, um, mm -hmm. and they do some great stuff, and they have the security of having a job as much as anyone has security these days with their jobs, I guess. Um, yeah. And then I also know people who are just very precious about their writing. You know what I mean? And we all know those types too. Right? Yeah. Usually you run across yeah. them like in MFA programs, right? They're like, you know, yeah. not that I've ever been in one, but you know, it's like, it, it, you know, there are the people who um, have this very rarefied, uh, um, very self-conscious, um, and very precious view of writing. Um, and they continually talk about their process and yeah. all that type of stuff. 
and you know, I don't think there's anything against, I don't have anything against any of that. Um, I, I do have a problem with, you know, people not understanding that there's a certain amount of privilege that comes along with that. I mean, it's a pretty privileged thing to sit around and ponder your fucking place in the universe as a writer. Like, some of us don't have that privilege. Some of us got to get shit written or we're not going to pay the bills. Um, And I think that I'm very appreciative of the fact that I spent many years in journalism before I ever tried my hand seriously at writing fiction because it sharpened a lot of writing skills, which have, you know, obviously been handy, but it just makes you appreciate um, the hard, fast, you know, shit's got to get done. Um, Now, I can be lazy. I can, you know, if you ask my agent, she'll be like, where's all this talk about getting stuff done? Like, (laughs) my agent right now, if she heard this, would be like, where's the revision on these two novels that you said you were going to have done like nine months ago? So it doesn't mean I always get stuff done when I, like, want to have them done. Um, But when it comes to me viewing things, how I prioritize uh, and how I try to kind of fumble my way forward through a writing career, it's always in, you know, I always keep in mind, you know, how do I pay the bills and how do I take care of things pragmatically? Um, yeah. And part of it is just me wanting to manage the, my own chaos. Like, you know, you mentioned um, some of the crazier stories that I write, um, totally non-commercial, um, you know, yeah. some of the short fiction that I write. And like, that's what's in my head all the time is utter chaos. You know what I mean? I mean, I do view the mm-hmm. world, you know, maybe it comes from my upbringing, but it's just chaos, dude. It's just a free for all. It's fucking Lord of the flies yeah. on a massive scale. And it's only tenuously that people e- even manage the fucking slim thread of civilization. We fucking dangle from right now, you know, you know? turn on the TV and watch a Trump rally and you'll see how fucking thin that fucking thread really is, you know? And so to me, I love writing stuff that's chaotic and crazy. You know, I identified really early on as a teenager with authors like, um, you know, William Burroughs. I was never into the beats per se, but William Burroughs I loved because to me he was like a beat writer writing science fiction, you know, which is its own, you know, insane kind of idea. Um, And so, and, you know, writers like J.G. Ballard, um, who was much more methodical and clinical about his writing, but that didn't make his concepts any less insane uh, than yeah. a lot of the stuff he wrote about. So writers like that I really identified with, uh, you know, a lot more. Um, so I love writing stuff like that, you know, whenever I get the chance. But I also, the pragmatic, make some money and pay the bills part of me realizes you can get away with doing some kind of crazier prose like that Um, when it comes to short stories and maybe even sell them every once in a while. But when it comes to a novel, I don't, when I first started writing, when I first wanted to start writing novels, I was like, I'm just going to basically write one of my crazy short stories times a hundred. And I began to realize that would maybe be the most pointless exercise, not just because I couldn't make (laughs) a living off it, but because no one wants to read that. You know, who wants to read that? Very few people can pull that off. William Burroughs among them and can make people want to read it. So that's when I was like, you know what? I love conventionally told stories um, and I have no problem with with telling stories like that. And I have no problem with paying my bills. You know, I've done commercial work. I've written uh, Pirates of the Caribbean book. For Disney, yeah. I've written a Goosebumps book for Scholastic. Those are genres I love. I love pirates and the supernatural and horror. So none of that was like outside my wheelhouse. But it's a real different way of looking at punk and the idea of selling out or being corporate. And then as a writer, to me, they're kind of night and day. It's different industries, different aesthetics. And uh, and maybe I'm just justifying it in my head, but I love doing work like that. And every time I do a commercial project like that, that's strictly pragmatic, that's totally the hungry blue-collar kid in me that will just do anything to survive. Every time I do something like that, it buys me time, sometimes months, to work on my own stuff. 
um, the projects that are original and more dear to my heart. So it all kind of works out for me, you know, and I'd like to think so in the long run. Yeah, that's awesome. And, um, I mean, it's funny you say night and day, but to me that seems like still a pretty punk approach to it just because, like, you know, punk is like, okay, so what can we – let's get rid of the bullshit of, you know, like uh, rock pomp that dominated the 70s and stuff and 60s and just make the fastest, you know, shortest, no bullshit path to get the point across. And it seems like you really, you know, hold that ethos intact with your writing, so that's pretty rad. Um, and so I just wanted to finish up now you had mentioned, uh, revising two novels for your agent. And so I was just curious, uh, what you're working on writing wise. Yeah, geez, I've been, the the big thing I've been working on right now is a nonfiction book actually. Um, which is without giving too many details is, uh, a book about how science fiction and fantasy have influenced music um, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, and oh, I yeah. did a big proposal for that. Um, and that's my agent's been sending that out to editors and knock on wood. We're still in the process of, of seeing how that might play out. Um, but that's something again, that just is like the, the two things I love the most, you know, um, speculative fiction and music. Um, so it's a book that kind of combines those interests. Uh, so I've been working on that. Um, and then I have two, like I mentioned, yeah, earlier, two novels. One is young adult and one's for grown-ups. Um, one science fiction and the other is fantasy. And, uh, those both have first drafts. Um, well, in the case of the young adult one, I think I'm up to my third draft now. Um, And there are different editors that have expressed interest in them, but I really still need to put a lot of work into them until they're ready to hopefully sell anywhere. Um, I had a really great experience last year. Um, The the adult novel, which is a fantasy novel that I wrote, is uh, set in actually in the punk and hardcore scene in Denver in the 1990s. it's very similar to a lot of the stuff uh, I've just been talking about with the Denver punk scene. Um, only in this version of Denver, magic exists. Uh, and so um, that obviously begins to, you know, kind of mess things up um, when you have this underground <laughs> punk scene that also kind of starts to overlap with this underground magic scene in the same city. Um, so that's kind of what that novel is about. And last summer, um, I got invited to do um, a workshop with seven other writers, um, and it was at uh, Neil Gaiman's house in Wisconsin. Uh, we yeah. stayed there five days, and we workshopped each other's work. Neil wasn't part of the workshop stuff, and I don't know him. I had never met him before. I've been reading his stuff since the late 80s. Um, I used to manage a comic book store. So like I'm super into Neil Gaiman. And, uh, so this was an amazing opportunity. He was there for the last two days and hung out with us a bit. Um, and was awesome, but he lives in this beautiful house, uh, in Wisconsin, um, totally rural. And it was pretty awesome. And it was one of those things where, you know, every time I start to lag a bit, on getting this book revised. I keep thinking, you know, I workshopped this at Neil Gaiman's house. Like, that's just an awesome opportunity, and I can't, you know, I've got to get back on the horse and, and get this thing done. Um, yeah. Just for, if for no other reason, that, so that wasn't a squandered opportunity. Um, but, you know, so I've got a lot of stuff that i am got kind of piled up for the rest of this year. And there's a novel I've been working on on and off, for about the last five years. And I think most writers have that novel that's always in the background that they pick away at. And they might write and have published entire other books while this other novel. And, and so that one I've been, you know, working on and, you know, as a, as a, as a fan of heavy music, you know, you might appreciate it because part, partly it was inspired by Mastodon actually. Um, it was inspired by a lot of other things, but, but, uh, it was, partly inspired by the fact that Mastodon decided to tackle, 
Moby Dick, you know, in on their album Leviathan, and and yeah. what uh, um, what a huge turning point I think for a lot of people that wasn't heavy music when when Mastodon came out. Um, yeah, and of course that wasn't their first album, but that was the album that really kind of got them noticed and, and got them out there. <clears throat> and uh, so I had this running playlist of music, and tons of it is metal. Um, that is going along with this with this other novel I'm writing. It's it's basically has a nautical theme. Um, I won't go into too many details because it'll be completely boring. But um, <laughs> there's tons of bands, metal bands, of course, that write about um, nautical themes and sea monsters and that type of like you know mythology. Uh, and so yeah. and even Moby Dick itself. I mean. Mastodon isn't the only band that's ever done that. So, um, really? so that's been really, you know, that's that's been uh, a really fun thing to be working on. And in the meantime, I'm still doing tons of freelance writing, music journalism, and trying to and reviewing books and all that. <clears throat> that's awesome. And uh, yeah, the nautical theme and just listening to just you know super heavy music seems to make total sense to me. Just like. Mastodon and you know giant squid and bands like that it's like how do you capture you know the kind of immensity of the sea and music and it seems like you know that type of just huge epic gratuitously heavy metal probably comes the closest absolutely yeah no that is, <laughs> uh, and i think that and there's in a way it's almost like the folk as i've been it's like folk music the more i've been researching nautical themed music it always it mostly boils down into two types of music folk and metal it's like you know you <laughs> yeah. would think of those types of music as being totally opposite but of course anyone who's into heavy music knows that you know there's a lot of folk music that that metal bands are sure. always drawn on and you know, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, you know, they were all into folk music, you know, um, and would have yeah. passages in their music that would have, you know, elements of, of folk to them. So, and even just sometimes the, the chord progressions and even some of the melodies and just the the narrative approach uh, sometimes is really similar. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, that... I don't know what I'll do eventually with this playlist because it's getting pretty massive, but someday I'll kind of put it all together. And then one day when the book comes out, maybe I'll just like do a big playlist and, and put it on Spotify or something. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, been, it's fun. And it's always fun listening to music while I write, which I do like to do. I don't know if you are one of those people who are, who's able to do that or not, but. Um, no, I, uh, yeah, just need complete silence. Horrible, boring, just like extreme of being a hermit, pretty much. I get super irritable when there's sound and turn into a horrible person, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> you need to just go. You need to just go into orbit and like write a book in outer space or something. I guess orbit isn't outer space, but you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Well, thanks a lot, man, for talking to me and you know for all the encouragement um for the book and stuff it's been amazing and um you know definitely for any listeners out there read everything jason heller writes uh you won't regret it oh thanks man and jj like i really enjoyed your book a lot obviously i related to it a ton so that was you know that's always a plus when you're able to personally relate to a book um but it's just really well written, and I think it, you really captured a lot of great stuff in there that you know that you wouldn't even necessarily expect from that book if you just like looked at the cover or read a quick review of it. You know, you do touch on a lot of really like deeper stuff in there that I think would resonate with a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you write next too. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Yeah. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye, JJ. Thanks. Yeah, bye. Thanks again.